After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they begin to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. All right, so we have here Jesus um, traveling with his closest followers and a flock of people following him. The text tells us it was about 5,000 men. Um, So people estimate anywhere between 10 and 15,000 people. The number that always sticks for me is 12, so I say 12,000 people. Uh, But Jesus being followed by a mass of people, many of them with different expectations or different understandings about who this man Jesus might be. Many of them hopeful that maybe this is the Messiah. You see, Israel is living in incredibly challenging times right now. Uh, They are a vassal state under a a, a cruel, oppressive Roman state, and uh, they have for a long time been uh, no longer their sovereign nation without their own king. They have been living under the rule of Babylon and then Rome. Times are incredibly difficult. You see, with their prophecies, their scriptures, these what we call the Old Testament, said that a Messiah would come. So they're constantly watching. And throughout Israel's history, prior to Jesus, people cropped up. And people would, would say, I think this might be the Messiah, and, and follow them. And then that rebellion would be put down by Rome, and they'd realize, oh, it wasn't the Messiah. What's interesting about, I didn't plan to talk about this, but what's interesting about that is a very similar thing happens with Jesus when he's crucified. But that's why resurrection is so powerful. The story of him rising from the dead. He was not just another claimer, but the Son of God who rose from the dead. Okay, so we continue. Um, Jesus walking through the, the, the landscape of Israel, and thousands of people are following him. And he turns to one of his people, Philip, and he asks, how are we, how are we going to feed 12,000 people? Where will we go to get that kind of bread? And I'm always curious in these sorts of texts, uh, why did he ask Philip specifically? Was Philip particularly gullible? Did they all want to get a laugh at Philip's expense? Uh, Was Philip just really practical and Jesus knew it would be a good teachable moment? I don't know exactly why it's Philip that he turns to, but Philip goes to the finances of the situation. It would take half of a year's wages, half of a person's uh, annual wage to feed this many people, and they would only get a crumb. They would only get a tiny bit at that. Philip is saying, this is impossible. What's interesting to me is that Jesus' question actually is not how would we get the money, but where would we get the bread, which I think is a really pertinent question. Uh, After our incredibly intense paddleboarding session yesterday, um, we went to Lulu's, and uh, it took 45 minutes to get a table for four. Can you imagine requesting at any restaurant in first century Israel bread for 12,000 people? What's the wait time on that, right? So Jesus is turning to his apostles and asking an impossible, somewhat ridiculous question. Where are we going to get the bread to feed these people? But of course, he already had in mind what he would do. It's Andrew that speaks up next. And he said, well, look at this little boy over here. He's got five pieces of bread and a couple fish that someone packed for him for his journey to get through the day. But he says, but how far could that go? 
Really, could that do much of anything? And I wonder if Andrew in this moment uh, is, is, is having one of those, well, there's some food. Oops, I should have kept my mouth shut. How foolish was that? It's only, how far could that go amongst this many people? But Jesus intended to do great things with something very small. As I've been in the text this week, I've been imagining the uh, experience of this boy. Uh, having a basket with just a tiny bit of food, and looking up at Jesus and the 12 apostles, the man that he was following. Imagine just being one of 12,000 that got close enough to look Jesus in the eye, and yet all of the apostles and Jesus turned their attention to this little boy and the little bit of food he has. What we know about his food is that it was barley, and uh, if we were first century Israelite people, we would know that this is a poor child. Barley was the same grain they would use to feed animals. And so this is a poor child walking through Israel, just following this man, Jesus. They turn their attention to him because he has the little food that they see around them. And it's incredible to me to think of a boy whose meager offering that day would have a profound effect on thousands of people. Because very small things in the hands of Jesus can do incredible things. At the end of the feeding here, they've all had their fill, and there's, uh, there's leftovers. Jesus provided and with, with abundance. There's leftovers at the end. And I just recognized this this morning as I was in the text, so I haven't fact-checked this or, or gone back to look at what other people say about it. Um, But it's interesting to me that they gather 12 baskets in this moment. Um, All of this story is alluding back to Israel's history. It's drawing Israelite people to remember what God has done in order to recognize what God is doing in this moment. And uh, Israel was represented by 12 tribes. And the statement Jesus makes as he invites them to, to gather up what becomes 12 baskets of bread is, let nothing go to waste. And I think it's fascinating, this morning, I'm just, this is running in my head, Jesus picking up the pieces of Israel, a nation invited to covenant relationship with God and beautiful work in this world who had over and over fallen short of their end of covenant, who had lost their nation and lived under oppressors. And here's Jesus, let nothing go to waste, born into this Israelite nation, picking up the pieces, inviting Israel to know a new season of God's work in this world. Let nothing go to waste. God was so faithful to Israel that he would cover both sides of covenant, that Jesus would come, intending nothing to go to waste, pick up the pieces, and move forward with God's good work in this world. After seeing this miracle, the people are convinced he's a prophet or maybe something more. At any rate, we want a king like this, a king that can put food on our tables, a king that will ensure that we have something to eat, a king that can perform these miraculous signs. And so they intend to put Jesus on the throne by force. And I don't know exactly what each person's intention was, but it probably looks something like 12,000 people scatter out to the villages around, go back to the towns that they live in, 
And we would, from 12,000 people, gather an army of tens or 100,000 people, then to go back to Jerusalem, to overthrow the throne. I'm sorry, to go back, yeah, to Jerusalem, to overthrow the throne, to put Jesus on the throne, and then begin negotiations with Israel, that they want to be a sovereign state again. This is, this is the hope that they have in this moment. Maybe this man, maybe we could have a king again. And did you notice Jesus' response? He vanishes. He just walks away and hides in the mountains. And it's not because he's afraid. It's not because he's fearful of what might come. It's because Jesus is a very different king than they intended for him to be. Our pacifist king walks away when power is at the doorstep, when when he's invited to prestigious places and powerful people want to put him on the throne. He just walks away. Because that's not the kind of kingdom Jesus is here to establish. Now, we could end the text here today. But if you're, if you've, if you're looking in a Bible or there's one around you if you want to look at it, chapter 6 continues because the feeding had far deeper significance than just filling the bellies of 12,000 people on that day. So today we're going to cover the entirety of the chapter, and I'll have to summarize the majority of the, next, uh, of, of the rest of that chapter to get there. Uh, evening comes. Jesus has fed all these people, and Jesus is off in the mountains somewhere. His disciples get in a boat to row across this lake and kind of to get away from the crowd. Uh, and sometime in the middle of the night, a storm has come up on the seas, and Jesus goes walking on the water out to their boat. It was just a casual pastime he enjoyed. He walks out to the boat, and, uh, and he, uh, they're terrified. He says, don't be afraid, and then they're not afraid, and he gets in the boat, and they arrive on the other side of the shore. The next morning, these people that had received their, uh, their meal and hoped to put Jesus on the throne realized Jesus hadn't left this side of the shore with his disciples, and yet he's not here. And they get word that Jesus somehow is on the other side of the shore with his followers. Now, on the surface, Jesus' miracle that he had just performed for them was simply filling their bellies because they didn't have anywhere to eat. But a much deeper understanding of what Jesus was revealing happens next in chapter 6. Jesus begins to discuss with the people that it now catch up to him on the other side of the lake. Um, and their discussion revolves around um, the bread that they had. Jesus says, you're just here because you want more food. You got your fill for one day, and now you just want a little bit more food. But Jesus begins to reveal to them uh, that they're in pursuit of the wrong thing. Bread that only fills you up for a day is not what you ought to be looking for. And so they say, well, if that wasn't what you wanted to show us, then show us another sign to prove who you are. And apparently stuck in their head is still this bread thing because they remind Jesus, you remember God gave our ancestors manna in the desert. And this is a story during the Exodus in which uh, God was leading his people out of slavery and to the promised land, and they're grumbling because they don't have any bread, anything to eat. And so each morning, there's bread provided to them. They call it manna, which literally means, what is this? It would appear on the ground, and apparently it was edible, and it sustained the people. And so they're drawing Jesus' attention back to this. I mean, daily, God gave us bread. You only gave us one day's bread. I think they just want more bread. I'm not entirely sure what's happening in this dialogue, uh, but they draw him to that. And Jesus responds in, in verse 35, 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus claims to be the bread of life. He is the bread of life come down from heaven, equivalent to the conversation of God sending down manna for the people to eat over and over. Whoever eats this bread will never go hungry. Whoever drinks uh, or, and, and will never be thirsty. This harkens back a couple chapters. Jesus is standing at a well with a Samaritan woman, and he's saying, uh, if, if you knew who I was, you would ask me for water, living water, water that will never run out. At this point, the Jews, as Jesus claims, I am the bread of life, in fact. Uh, I'll not give you more bread because I am the bread. The Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is, not, is, is, not, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? <clears throat> this is poetic brilliance on John's part that would be really easy to miss. What we have here is Israel reliving their own story in Jesus' presence. What John is describing for us here is the Israelite people grumbling about the bread that God is giving them because it's not good enough. John wants us to keep being drawn back to this narrative of Exodus and God providing for his people because the promise in Jesus as the bread of life is far greater than any, any anything Israel had ever experienced in the past. So, the people are starting to get angry, right? Here they are again, grumbling in the desert because they don't like the bread that God has provided. And as if things aren't bad enough, remember a moment ago they wanted to make Jesus king. Listen to what Jesus says next in verse 51. Uh, I am the living bread that came down from ever, <laughs> that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, with which I will give for the world, for the life of the world. This bread is, you have to eat this bread, and, and this bread is my flesh. Naturally, uh, they respond, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Is Jesus literally promoting cannibalism in this moment? Clearly not. That's not how the story plays out in the long run. But in this moment, there is great confusion. Verse uh, 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, he is not making the situation better, in, and drink his blood, uh, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum. What in the world is Jesus doing? Now, naturally, what happens next in the text, which, again, we won't read uh, for today, uh, it says many people left him. They, did, they had no clue what he was saying. And many people who used to believe in Jesus walked away. What was 12,000 was pared down to who knows how many. But Jesus even turns to his apostles, his, clo his 12 closest followers, and he says, do you want to leave me too? And they say, no, because you have the words of life. 
is their response. What in the world is Jesus doing in this text? Many people turned away on that day. And here we find ourselves confronted with the same text, the same conversation, and wondering, what in the world are we to do with this message? What is Jesus trying to get across both to Israel and now as we look at it, 2,000 years later in our context, what is Jesus trying to get across to us? First and foremost, uh, I want to just uh, repoint out the fact that Jesus uh, is um, reliving Israel's story, reliving the wandering in the desert experience of Israel, and pointing attention to bread and himself as that, to reveal himself as the greater hope for Israel than even all the miraculous and wonderful things that God had done in the past. Secondly, we have in the story a, a, a bunch of hungry people, right? And while they're satisfied with a day's worth of bread and and want some more, Jesus takes this illustration of hungry people and draws attention to spiritual matters. Uh, A spiritual hunger. Uh, If you take just a moment to look around at the world around us, you'll recognize that people are hungry spiritually, looking for something more. And culturally, we have uh, largely kind of turned away from Christianity. You know, large segments of our culture don't, don't want to have that conversation anymore because it was so ingrained into our nature, nation and who we were and how we understood things for so long. And so there's kind of been a swing of a pendulum. But I don't think we see people less spiritually hungry, just looking for answers and, and things that fill that void in other ways. Jesus, in this text, claims that he is the sustenance. He is what would fill us up. At the end of the text, as he, at the end of the, uh, the miracle, as he says, um, gather up the leftovers, let, let nothing be wasted. I find myself resonating in those words as I explore this text, this text and Jesus as uh, our spiritual food. What am I leaving behind? Like Jesus has provided abundantly, the Spirit is at work in our lives, around us, in the lives of the people that we are interacting with, inviting us to to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled up and satisfied, to have sustenance in our lives. And I think so often I'm leaving behind so much, wasting what he might have invited us to. Is there more that we might be receiving from Jesus who promises to fill us in a spiritual respect? Well, the story calls us into the past. It calls us to remember Israel's history. It also alludes to something in the future. In this conversation of eating my flesh and drinking my blood, remember John is writing some 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion. The church is relatively well established, and one of the most regular practices in the church point is communion, that they would come together and they would share a meal. They would break bread and drink of this juice. And the bread represented Jesus' body broken on a cross, and the juice represented his blood poured out. For, ju- for sure, John is calling our attention, calling the church's attention as he writes this letter about Jesus to the churches. He's drawing their attention to this reality, that Jesus invited us 
to know him as our hope, as our sustenance. He invited us to live into rhythms of reliving not just Israel's story, but now as we take communion today, we get to kind of live into and in an embodied way experience his crucifixion and, of course, remember his resurrection. So we're going to take communion today. Uh, in just a moment, uh, just before Jesus was arrested, you guys can come on up and, and get ready if you would. Uh, they're going to lead us in, in a song as we take communion today. Um, Jesus, uh, just before his arrest and crucifixion, would sit with his closest followers, and he would, uh, and, and he would invite them. Uh, he'd take the bread at the table, and he broke it, and he said to them, this is my body. Every time you eat it together, remember me. Remember my sacrifice. And you would take the, the wine at the table, and, and, and he drank it, and he passed it around, and he said, drink of this, and as you do, remember my blood that will be poured out for you. And so today, 2,000 years later, I mean, for, for 2,000 years, the church has been practicing this in, rem- in remembrance of Jesus. This little ceremony, this little reliving of what Christ has done for us as we take bread and as we take grape juice and as we remember Jesus' body and his blood poured out. In the text today, we see Jesus claiming that there is life in his body. There's life in eating his flesh and drinking his blood as he described it. And maybe it's not so much a physical thing as we take it today, but I know this, there is life. It is, it is uh, life-giving to live into the rhythms of Jesus in this world. And communion is an opportunity and invitation to keep coming back to these fundamental elements, to, remembering, to remember Jesus and his sacrifice. Jesus, in our text today, said that those that believe will experience eternal life. And today, as we take communion, it's a statement of our belief placing our hope in Jesus, and we keep living back into that reality. So today we are reminded uh, of Jesus that feeds us, that gives abundantly, that there might be overflow leftovers. If you're ready to take a next step in your faith journey, if you're ready to go deeper and receive more from Jesus, it is available. If you'd like to respond in any way, if you'd like prayers in that next step in the journey, if you'd like to walk with us and start meeting together and studying scripture and praying together, let's take those steps. Jesus offers so much more, offers abundantly. Thank you for being here with us today. It has been a blessing to be together. I remind you, there's coffee and cookies in the fellowship hall, and uh, feel free to stick around, have conversations. Friends, thanks for being here. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you soon.